which was an excellent Petra album for everyone actually old enough to, to remember. I'm talking to me and Dan right now, I think, and that's about it. <laughs> and, and Mark and maybe Dean. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You should, ask, you should ask Dan later about going to the Us Festival. Yeah, which wish I could have been there. Anyways, so off track. So Gordy is going to share with us uh, very soon. Uh, but first, um, for the benefit of our friends who are listening online at the podcast that's currently being recorded, I'd like to start out um, by reading Gordy's um, teaching text, uh, which will be uh, up here, uh, Galatians, uh, from Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and by all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, then let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so, Lord, as we... Um, as Gordy expands on these very interesting words uh, from Galatians, we just ask that you'll move through him and open our ears to hear what you have for us at this moment. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Glee. Awesome. Well, today we begin a new teaching series, and as I said last week, every few months or so, we like to do this once or twice a year where we we actually work our way through some text. We work our way through scripture, a book in the Bible. And this is a good discipline for us as a church. It's very easy for a church to gravitate to its pet projects, its pet themes, and, and kind of hammer that. Whereas when, you're, when you go through scripture, you're forced to let scripture set the agenda as to, to uh, what's being talked about. And so I think it's a good discipline. And so... Um, but because we're so addicted to agendas, I still gave it a theme, God's radical embrace. And uh, you say, why, Gordy, did you call this series God's radical embrace? And why, uh, what, do we, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by God's radical embrace? Well, when we say embrace, is there, are there any images from Scripture that come to your mind? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. I can tell we don't have a hugger over there. Okay. Anybody else? The prodigal son. Anybody else think the same? Yeah. A few? Any other images? Mary and Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth. When she went to see her. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Abraham and Isaac after the sacrifice. <laughs> it's kind of like a relief hug, right? Huh? Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, there are, there are definitely some powerful images in Scripture. Uh, this is uh, Rembrandt's uh, depiction of the prodigal son. And you hear and you see in this image uh, kind of uh, the, the one son, but there's another son who's not too excited about the whole thing. Um, we tend to embrace... When we say God's radical embrace, we're calling it radical because in our own natural instincts, we tend to embrace those who are naturally attractive to us. I don't have problems embracing my wife or my children or my grandkids. But the story of the prodigal son is a depiction of the father embracing someone who by the social conventions of that time, maybe was quite repulsive. Uh, still his son, of course, and that's the power of the story. But there was a repulsiveness. I mean, what this guy had done in wasting his father's inheritance and running away was not the most uh, attractive thing. So God's embrace of us is while we were enemies, while we were sinners, Maybe to go a bit, uh, to, to, to go a step further, I was, as I was reading through the book of Galatians a few months ago, at the same time, concurrently, I'm reading another book called Exclusion and Embrace by a fellow by the name of Miroslav Volf. It's, quite, it's not light reading. It's actually pretty heavy, but it's, it's, a sto it's an exploration of identity and otherness. And this fellow who's now a former academic uh, from Fuller seminary, but now a professor at Yale University, argues that otherness is, the, is one of the biggest challenges of our world today, and hatred of the other, hatred of those that are different than us. And he proposes that the gospel of reconciliation, this idea of God's radical embrace, he doesn't use that term radical, but God's embrace is the answer, the the. And, and, and that includes embracing those that we hate, embracing those that we have reason to hate. And so he contrasts embrace with exclusion, where we exclude people because of our rationale, because of our own sense of perspective on justice. And he argues that as we take the costly step of opening ourselves to the other, enfolding him or her in the same embrace that we've been embraced by God is the only answer for our world today. Well, that sounds really nice, nice, theoretical, academic. That's beautiful. Except that Wolf is a Croat. How many have ever heard of Croatia? And he grew up in the Balkan War. And he knows what it was to be the victim of ethnic cleansing. And he describes the disturbing... Now, this is a bit disturbing, so I'll warn you in advance. The story of a Muslim woman who said... Who wrote, I am a Muslim. And I'm 35 years old. To my second son who was born, I gave the name Jihad. Can you imagine naming your child Jihad? So he would not forget the testimony of his mother, which is revenge. 
The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. So be it. The Serbs taught me to hate. For the last two months, there was nothing in me. No pain, no bitterness, only hate. I taught these children, now she's talking about the Serbian children, I taught these children to love. I did, because I'm a teacher. A teacher of literature. I was born in Elias and almost died there. One of my students, a Serbian, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated in my mouth. And as the bearded hooligan standing around me laughed, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. I do not know whether I first heard the cry or felt the blow. My former colleague, another Serb, a teacher of physics, was yelling like mad, Astasha, Astasha, and he kept hitting me, wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul, it hurts. I taught them to love, and all the while they were making preparations to destroy everything that is not of the orthodox faith. Jihad, war, that is the only way. This is drawn from a book called The Killing of Sarajevo by a Serbian journalist. He comments, and Wolf uh, agrees with him, that children around the world are learning hatred and revenge by such stories. That, that revenge and hate is being in, in, inscribed on the very fabric of their lives. And so Miroslav is not writing out of some academic theory. He's, he's writing out of having been, having grown up in that. And, he, and yet he argues that the only way out of this endless cycle is to pursue the embrace of the other. Otherwise, we are consigned to a continued cycle of revenge and hate. So, I would like to argue that why is it that Christians who are so-called Christians can inflict that kind of hatred on someone else? Why is it, as, as what happened in Rwanda, so-called Christian Hutus can kill Tutsis and vice versa, or in Ireland, or in the religious civil wars of, of France and Europe, Christians in the name of God can kill each other I believe that our text today gives us answers why, is that they got the gospel wrong. They haven't understood the good news. Because if you understand the good news, it produces reconciliation. This is the cover of, of Wolf's book, and does anybody, can anybody guess which, this is a sculpture who depicted another story in the Bible does anybody, can anybody guess this story? This is the story of the banishment of Ishmael. So Hagar's kind of back in the corner there, so there's this exclusion and embrace that's going on in this story. And is that ever relevant today, huh? Is that ever a picture of our world today? So let's work through the text. Um, we're doing a bit of Lectio Divina. Wade just read the text, but I want to read it again. Just listen to it. Listen to it. Paul, an apostle, 
sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Who wrote Galatians? Actually, Paul and, and the community wrote it with it. And, and you'll notice this about a lot of the letters, is it wasn't just Paul. He was involved, but often he did it in community with Timothy and Silas and, and, and people that he was with. And I love that because, because it wasn't just one guy being the Pope, but it was a community wrestling together with Scripture and truth. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So Paul, in a nutshell, sums up the gospel in this verse. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Did you know that you are a part of a coming age already? You've been plucked out of this current age, which is an age of darkness and death and sickness, and, and he's put you in the age to come. So there's this already not yet reality. And Jesus willingly offered himself. Yes, the Father sent Jesus, but Jesus said, Father, I want to go. He gave himself. Now, who are these Galatians? Well, let's look at a map. What's the series on a book without a map? You'll see here, this, this uh, larger caption shows the larger part of the world that this is in. There's Italy there. This is the Mediterranean. This is Greece. And this is modern-day Turkey. So you expand that and you get this. So Galatia is actually a part of what would be modern-day Turkey today. But back in those times, it was called Galatia because it was the land of the Gauls. It was Celtic land. It was a land where Celts had come from Europe, maybe even as far as the British Isles, and they invaded this area. I think they liked the Mediterranean sun. I think they wanted more sunshine. They were tired of all the rain in Britain. <laughs> so they invaded this land of the Gauls. So they were very wild. They were not Jews. They had no religious background. They were very pagan. They were like Vancouver. 99% unchurched, right? No gospel background. Did you know most of our city has no gospel reference or no gospel background? That's what the Galatians were. And you remember that Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts were commissioned after a great revival amongst the Gentiles in Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria, kind of north of Jerusalem. And they were commissioned to go on a, their first missionary journey. And so they traveled to Cyprus. Cyprus is kind of hidden by the box there, but it's down there. They had a few good things happen. Remember that guy that resisted? He went blind. And, uh, but they, they, their real harvest ended up when they, they set sail and landed on the shores of a, what's called Asia Minor. And they began to travel up through this area. And they came to an area called, a city called Pisidian Antioch. And their strategy was they would go into a synagogue. How, how were they missionaries? They would go to the Jews first. 
And they would try to tell the Jews that, the Jew, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So the first Sabbath they went, which is Saturday, they went on a Saturday to the Jewish synagogue. They told about Jesus and the people said, oh, the Jewish people said, that's pretty interesting. That's cool. That's nice. Why don't you come back again next week? So we don't know what Paul was doing for that week. Maybe he's looking for an apartment. I don't know. But he, he, he probably was doing some evangelism, you know, inviting people. But the Bible says the next week, this is in Acts 13, the whole city showed up. I'm not just talking Jews. I'm talking Gentiles. Somehow the word got out about this Jewish Messiah. And, and, and the Gentiles were attracted. Well, what happened was, not all, but some of the Jews got very jealous and kicked them out of the synagogue. So Paul said, okay, we're going to go to the Gentiles. And a pretty predominantly Gentile church was established in Pisidia and Antioch. But then the Jews raised up opposition, kicked them out of town. I, we used to say when Paul went to a local city, you know, most evangelists today look for the Hilton Hotel. Paul would look for the local jail. He would check it out, say, yeah, good accommodations. Okay, make a bed for me. I'll be there soon, right? And Paul... And this is the time when Paul went from city to city with the same strategy. And remember that one place where they, he saw this guy that was lame, and so he kind of pulled a Jesus and said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the guy jumped to his feet. And this, it was in the city of Lystra, close to Iconium. And Paul had just been booted out of a city before. And the people in this city said, it's a God, it's a God. So they were bringing sacrifices and they, were, they, they said, it's, 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 it's uh, Mars, I think, and, and Hermes. It was two, two Greek gods and they began to worship him. And they Paul, because they had funny habits back then, he tore his clothes and said, no, 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 don't do this, right? Well, then the people from the city that he was at before came along and said, this guy's a heretic, and then they stoned him. Took him outside the city, stoned him, shows you, you know, Fickleness of a crowd, right? So there's Paul under a pile of rocks. Everybody thinks he's dead. There was a young guy, probably 15, 14 years old, named Timothy, who was watching all this. And all of a sudden, they, you know, they think Paul's dead, and all of a sudden, a little rock moves. Then another rock, and this hand comes out. It's like one of those movies, you know, like, this hand comes out. Then Paul slowly pulls him out. His head's twice the size from all the rocks. And they said, Paul, you're still alive. Do you have a word? And he said, this light affliction endures just for a moment. Let's go, right? And so you'll, you'll read, as we read through Galatians, he'll talk about the incredible suffering that they, they witnessed in Paul's life. He said that they would tear out their eyes for them. The Galatians saw, he came to them not as some pompous uh, Televangelists, he came in brokenness and in pain and in suffering. And so, tremendous harvest. Uh, it just, it was an unbelievable harvest. The Gauls, the Celts were ready for the gospel and it spread like wildfire. And then he retraced his steps and many Jews were saved. So, so as well. So, so it wasn't just Gentiles. But Jews were the minority. Jews were people who were versed in the Old Testament law, the Torah. The Gentiles had absolutely no biblical background. So Paul had to go back and establish elders. And my theory is, is that the elders he's established was Jews. 
I think that they had the biblical background and a little bit of context. And so he said, you guys, you know, Jesus is Messiah. These Gentiles need discipleship. You disciple them. So he established elders through these towns. We don't know for sure, but I, I have a, that's my theory. A lot of people agree with that. So let's read on. But he, that, this is shortly after. This is probably after his first missionary visit. This is probably before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, which I'll talk about in a minute. He, he writes this letter. It's one of his earliest letters. There's different theories on when the date of the letter is. But because he doesn't mention the Jerusalem Council, I believe this was very early in his ministry. He writes, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now what, what had they done? Paul said, you're deserters. You're deserting the one who called you into unconditional favor. The grace of God. The gift of God. God had called you and invited you into this incredible grace. You've turned from it. What did they do? Did they backslide? Did they go into sin? No. Did they leave the, the worship of the living God and, and start worshiping idols? No. Were they teaching false doctrine that Jesus wasn't God and that he hadn't risen from the dead? No. What had they done? They had turned from grace to religion. They had turned into a different criteria for who it is that are the people of God. Who's in and who's out. And this was uh, a very subtle thing that happened. So he finishes by saying, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? In other words, the reason this had happened was because of social and religious pressure. There was a social and religious pressure that had come and Paul was saying, I'm not going to give in. So what, what's going on? Well, the big picture was, let's remember that God had promised to the Jewish people at the founding of their nation to Abraham, I will bless you and make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, I want to embrace the whole world and I'm going to do it through you. That was the call of Israel. So the idea of Gentiles becoming Part of the family of God was not something new. Israel knew that was going to happen. But the assumption was that if, 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 if a Gentile was going to become part of the people of God, they had to become Jewish. They had to, if you're male, you had to be circumcised. And all of them had to submit to the Jewish culture and the Jewish laws. And, and so even when Christ came... For the first few years in the early church, there was the assumption that if Gentiles were to become followers of Jesus, they had to become Jewish. They had to be, submit to the circumcision rite. They had to take on the marks of, of Jewish culture. Until there was this ter 
terrific paradigm shift that occurred with Peter, who was on his evangelistic campaign. And he was up on the rooftop, and he was quite hungry. And a, a, a few, uh, about a day's journey away, there was a Gentile that was visited by an angel. The Gentile's name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a godly man, and hungry and searching. And he received an angelic visit. And the angel said, go look for a guy named Peter. So the Holy Spirit timed it so that while they were coming to get Peter, Peter's on the rooftop. And it was common to be on rooftops. They were flat back then. People would go up there and relax and suntan and things like that. And, and he was hungry. And while he was waiting for supper, all of a sudden the sheet came down. And it was full of pork chops, ham, bacon, shrimp, lobster, shellfish. Everything non-kosher you can imagine. And the, and the Lord said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. I will not eat what is common or unclean. And again, I, I want you to understand what's going on in this guy's mind. What's going on? The Holy Spirit is telling him to do something that in his mind was opposite to the command of God. He was asking him to do something that all his life he believed it was not only wrong, it was an abomination. I mean, it was in the same category as all the bad sexual practices of the pagan nations around them, all these prohibitions. And it happened three times. Rise, Lord, rise Peter, kill and eat. He said, Lord, I can't eat what's common or unclean. And three times God said, what God has called clean, don't you call unclean. Now, how many think that's a preparation for what was going to happen? Because after the sheet got up, he's going to go, and there was a knock on the door. And it's a bunch of goyim at the door saying, uh, is there a guy named Peter here? Uh, there's a centurion down in Caesarea. He's called for you. And so Peter, because of the vision, was ready. He responded. He goes down, it's a day's journey to, to Cornelius' house. He gets to Cornelius' house, and he does something that Jewish people don't do. He went into the house of a Gentile, an unclean Gentile, ate with the Gentiles, and he began to tell them the gospel, and he didn't even get to finish. The Holy Spirit interrupted him, and, and they all started speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they hadn't even been baptized yet. God just broke all the rules. They, didn't have, they weren't circumcised. They didn't become Jews. But they got the same empowering experience that happened to all those disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter baptized them. They became followers of Jesus. But after it was done, he got criticized. And it says that some of the people... Uh, that were uh, in Jerusalem, some of the Jewish Christians uh, called him to account. They said, you went into the house of my clean Gentiles. You, you broke Torah. So Peter said, well, let me tell you my story. So he tells them this story. And when they heard this, it said they had no further objections. Now, I want you to see something here. The Holy Spirit does something. There's an encounter with God, and they adjust their theology. They said, oh, I guess Gentiles get in. Well, easier said than done. There's a big problem there. Gentiles get in. They don't have to become Jews. That's fine until you start having to eat together. 
That's fine until you start trying to do church together. That's fine until you start trying to be a community together. And, and a lot of the New Testament writings, you read Romans, you read Galatians, a lot of it is the church struggling to not become a Jewish and Gentile denomination. How can we still be one body? And I actually, I don't, think, I don't think they did it. The whole book of Romans is about that. Romans 14, about doubtful things. And Paul almost seems to contradict himself about eating meat offered to idols and circumcises. And one time he circumcises Timothy, and another time he doesn't circumcise Titus. And one time he, he, he says, don't eat offered to idols. Another time he says, it's, a, it's, a, it's up to your... There's this, there's this ambiguity and confusion going on about how do we live this out? What does this look like? It's easy to say, Jews and Gentiles are now part of the same body. But how do we live that out practically? What does that look like? And so they had to become a community of what we call moral discourse. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to take a lot of time today to explain this, but I'll be taking a lot of time over the next few months explaining this. Because I think it's one of the most critical things that we're going to have to learn in being the church and reaching who God wants us to reach in our time. And what, is it, what do we mean by moral discourse? Well, moral discourse is, first of all, when somebody does something that's controversial, like Peter, and, and instead of criticizing him, and instead of saying, oh, he's a heretic, there's a respectful asking and a respectful inquiry. And at the same time, there's a respect on the part of the one who's being asked to answer. So Peter told his story. And then there's a process of discerning that goes on where we, we have to deliberate and say, well, what shall we then do? Or how shall we then live? And, and is it in line with the good news? Is it in line with the story? Is it in line with the gospel? So you say, well, Gordy, it's all really clear in Scripture. Oh, yeah? yeah? Then why in the world was it so hard for William Wilberforce to overthrow the slave movement? Because there are Scriptures that say, slaves, submit to your masters. Now I want you to somebody that was brought over by human trafficking and enslaving in a garment factory nearby, and they come to our church and we pull out that Scripture and read that to them. Right? They're, they're, what about the one it's a shame for a man to have long hair? What about the one about women being silent in the church? There's all kinds of scriptures where we realize that you have to back away from it and say, was that culturally bound? Was that a certain context? But what is the Holy Spirit saying today as, we, as the gospel continues to leaven our lives and, and how is this consistent with the story so when the, script, when the church comes to issues that, that are not clear, there's this moral uh, discourse is, is necessary. And it happened in the early church when uh, some Jews began to teach Gentiles that in order for you to be followers of Jesus, you're going to have to become Jewish. Caused a big conflict. So they had the, the, the Paul and, and Barnabas refuted it, and there was conflict. And then they had this big conference in Jerusalem, and I love how it starts. It says, after much discussion. I have a feeling that was a long time. 
I have a feeling that they really wrestled with this, and we're talking probably days and maybe even weeks, where they wrestled through this whole issue of what, what is required of Gentiles to become followers of Jesus. But after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, that, I love this verse. I italicized it on purpose. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the next of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? and you're trying to make the Gentiles be us, we can't even be us. We suck at being Jews. No, verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. And what does a good Christian leader do when they're in a dispute? They quote scripture. The problem is all the Jewish Judaizers, the people that were trying to make the Gentiles Jews, you know what they were doing? They're going, yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, that's good. That's a good scripture. Uh-huh. Isn't it amazing how two Christians can listen to the same scripture and come to a completely different con uh, conclusion? So the, the, the Judaizers are going, yeah, that's right. They all, God wants to bless the Gentiles. They just have to become like us. But Paul and Barnabas are going, no, 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 no. No, they don't. You see, it's because we got that wrong that we had residential schools. They got to become like us. Right? So, James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What's going on here? What's this about meat strangled, about blood? What, why, is he, why is he saying that? Does it apply to us? No. I love rare steak. I, I disobey that scripture every day almost. Right? Some of it. So what's going on? They are wrestling with what culturally, what it looks like to be a community together where you got Jews and Gentiles. And James is saying, hey, you Gentiles, you don't have to obey the Jewish food laws, but you need to understand that the Torah is read 
all across the world. And so what you're doing is you need to realize you're offending your brothers and sisters. So give them a little slack. They're a little bit anal. They're a little bit stuck in their ways. So be loving. Give, give them some slack and just be respectful. Right? In some ways, it's, it's like when we have a community meal and we try to make room for people that are vegetarian or people that are, are celiac. Or we, we, it's, a lo- it's an act of love, right? Mm-hmm. That's what James is appealing to. And so they sent out this letter. But the, ish- the primary issue here is really the the community of God and and what's the criteria for being in and out? Right? So I want you to imagine this. I'm going to... Some of you have seen this before, but this is a group of dots. These dots, they represent people. Different walks of life, different phases. And this circle represents who's in, And who's out? We call this a bounded set. And the criteria is kind of set on this boundary here. Wrong button. Here. This boundary is right doctrine. You know, you've been baptized maybe. You go to church. It's what Dallas Willard calls barcode Christianity. Right? You got the right barcode. You're in, you're out. Now, a lot of us like this bounded set idea because we like definitions and clarity of who's in and who's out and standards. You know, you live a certain way. You, you know, you're, you're a good person. You don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do, right? So, but there's another way of looking at reality in the community of God, and I think this is what Paul is arguing for. And, and this... this This cross represents Jesus, and these arrows represent people. And it has to do with their direction they're moving. Right? So rather than having these clearly defined boundaries, and don't get me wrong, I believe in boundaries. We'll talk about that in a minute. But instead of these clearly defined boundaries, it has to do with the direction you're in. So for example, in Jesus' life and ministry, This was a Pharisee. They looked really good. They lived really well. And this was a prostitute or a tax collector out here, way far away. But this person is going in this direction. This person is moving towards Christ. They've heard his call, follow me. So it has to do not with distance, but with direction. And so often what happens is is we get into this... um, the same clutter problem that the early church did where we're trying to define who's in and out. So we hear that it's by grace through faith. We follow Jesus. We say yes to him and we receive the embrace of God. We go, hallelujah, I'm free from my sin. I'm free to follow Jesus. I'm free to to have him in my life and to have him mentor me and guide me and teach me and instruct me. But then we say, yeah, but if you're going to be a real Christian, you're going to have to go to church. All right. So then we start following Jesus and go, oh, that's cool. Like, follow Jesus. 
go to church. Yeah, but if you're going to be a real Christian, you've got to read your Bible. Okay. Yeah. See? And then, oh, yeah, but if you're going to, you've got to pray. Okay. All right. Uh, and and, and you've got to tell people about, you've got to witness. Okay. Uh, let's see here. All right. All right. Now, is there anything wrong with these things in themselves? No. But we get the cart before the horse. Right? And this is what happened with the Galatians. They, they got... Thanks, honey. Whom, this, whom the wife has set free is free indeed. And there's, there's this... this the, the, the greatest tragedy is, is God becomes inaccessible to the very ones he's reaching out to with embrace. Because we who are representing him have fallen into that same clutter. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in light and darkness, in truth and error. I believe that there are boundaries. There are sheep and goats. But what's the problem? There is light and darkness. There is truth and error. There are sheep and goats. But what's the problem? There is wheat and tares. Who really knows? Who knows? Yeah, God knows. God knows, right? And he also said, what did he say? Wait till the harvest. Wait till the end of time. Judge nothing before the time. Why? Because you know what? An immature wheat looks a lot like a weed. So who are we to judge? Our job is to proclaim the good news and to... And Jesus says, follow me. I am capable of healing, of restoring. But we have this insatiable need for a pecking order, for a caste system, for a sense of superiority. I've been, it's like the laborers in the vineyard. Remember that parable that Jesus told where people were hired at 6, 9, 12, 3, and then the people that got hired at the end of the day and only worked for one hour got paid the same as the people that started at 6 in the morning. Philip Yancey calls that the mathematics of grace. And it's offensive to us when we start allowing our security and our identity to be based on our performance. So the real issue then of Galatians that we want to unpack is Jesus sufficient? Is he capable without our systems and our rules? The problem with the Galatians, they were so radical and unruly. Maybe they were drug addicts. I don't know. But they were messed up. And the Judaizers said, there's no way you can just expect grace through faith to change them. They've got to have some rules. We've got to have some discipline here. Give me the podium again. Give me the, the hot seat. Right? You can't expect grace to be enough. Paul said, when they, and, and we'll read this as we go through, but as they started going back into rules, guess what? They started nitpicking at each other. They started biting and devouring one another because legalistic, rule-keeping people who keep score start chewing up one another. It's exactly what happens. The gospel is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. 
So I want to conclude with this, this thought. And maybe Kathleen, if I could get you to come back up here, since you've been so helpful already today. I want to give an illustration, the anatomy of a hug. I thought she, she would probably be the appropriate person to illustrate. But there are, there are four, four elements. Oh, we've rehearsed. Wait a uh, there are four elements of a hug that Wolf, uh, Miroslav Wolf talks about. Very powerful metaphor, I believe. The first element of a hug is when the embrace is offered, right? So if you're going to hug somebody, you reach out to them. And he says that before you actually embrace them, there's actually a second element called space, where you give that person space, where it's, I offer, and so God offers his embrace, his radical embrace to all of us. And, thanks, Doug. And there's, there's that, that invitation. It's always invitational. It's never coerced. It's never imposed. He'll never swallow us up. He respects our dignity as human beings. And so there's that space given, and then the hug is... If, if it is an embrace, is reciprocated, right? So mm. there's this embrace, like this. Okay. <laughs> and she's right. Because there's a fourth element, and what is it? Hmm? Let go, baby. <laughs> yeah, you let go. That's right. There's an important element of that where the embrace is given, but then you let go. Because you're not enmeshed. You're not an appendage. You're not imposing or coursing yourself on someone. There's that letting go and that rhythm of embrace that happens. And so that is, could I, could I simplify our mission and our message today as a church? That is our call. We don't have to fix people or sort them out. Our call is to be God's embrace. To talk about Jesus and be nice, for God's sake. Is that so complicated? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We invite you to come and and, and I feel this morning that I want to give an invitation for those who are just needing God's embrace afresh. Just let them come. Where it's got complicated, where you're just full of podiums and, and stools and, and you can't, you, you just can hardly move. You become so encumbered by, by life. And I believe that Christ is just calling us back to the simplicity of following him. There's only one rule. It's called love. Receive that love. Receive that embrace and give it. To walk in that rhythm. 
Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now to those who feel distant, who feel excluded today, who feel, Lord, afar. Would you come, Lord? Would you embrace us? Lord, for those of us who feel like the prodigal, like we're, we smell of vomit, we smell of, of pigsty, we, we, we feel like we've messed up. Lord, you don't wait for us to have a shower and have a bath and put nice clothes on. You come in the midst of the mess and you embrace us. Would you come, Lord? And Lord, would you also touch our receptors? Lord, some of us, we're not good huggers. We're not good at receiving hugs. When a hug is given, we freeze up. Maybe it's because of our story of of agendas behind those hugs where we felt that if we received the hug, we'd never be let go. We were smothered. We couldn't be who we are. Lord, would you heal us? Would you free us by your spirit? Just let him tenderly come. Receive his embrace. I just find when I'm not very good at receiving it, I'm really lousy at giving it. We can only give what we've received. So let him love you. Let him love on you today. If there's repentance let his needed, let his goodness bring you to repentance. Don't, don't let it come out of shame or guilt, but let it come... Because he's for you and he loves you and he frees you. The only thing he's against is anything that's going to hurt you and rob you of the life. He's jealous for your best. He wants what's best for you. Let it come. Creaky stooler. So, <clears throat> I've left some questions on your bulletins for those of you going into small groups um, that you can work through. And I'm just going to ask all our teachers to, in the weeks to come just to, to, to design questions from three areas. One is from a personal perspective. Why do we find it easier to default to rules, systems, and standards? to give us a sense of belonging rather than simply trusting what God has done for us in Christ. Why, why do we find it so hard just to, to receive grace, that unmerited gift of God's favor? Why do we, we get into pecking orders and caste systems? It's not just India that has caste systems. They're in England. They're in Canada. They're everywhere. What about community? Who in my community am I finding it difficult to embrace? because they don't fit my categories. Or maybe they've been hurtful or hateful. Wolf, who was a victim, by the way, said this, that if a victim, the moment a victim has evil perpetrated on them, that evil becomes part of them unless they are proactive. 
You cannot be passive once you're a victim. You cannot be. Or the evil that the perpetrator inflicted on you becomes a part of you. That's quite a statement. It's quite offensive in our world. So, so think about those things, you know, and there, and there may be, you know, in your home groups, there may be questions that came up today that I didn't include on here. Don't be afraid to raise those, please. That's what this is about. Culture, Paul talks about another gospel, which is not the gospel, that turned the Galatians away from Christ. Why is it that sometimes the, the times I feel the closest to Jesus is when I have fallen flat on my face? Why? It's because often that was preceded by a time of estrangement where I was pretty proud about how good I was. Is anybody relating to that at all? <laughs> Discuss ways this has occurred in our culture and time, how we can counteract this effectively and positively. Embracing the other. Who in your life is the other? How does this speak to us in our um, being good news in our culture today? Sure. Here's a microphone. I just wrote something during the service that I think really applies to what's been talked about. So I'm just going to share it with you guys. I know that tomorrow looks just like today. I know this tragedy has become mundane. You've kicked the dust and spit up rust when you think of fighting. Your fists resist and your eyes, they shut. I know tomorrow looks just like today. I know this tragedy has become so mundane. Slits on wrists, parched lips, and the unrequited love you've been hit with. A brother dies, your feet, they're tired. Your mouth just can't speak another word. So sure you haven't been heard. This is not the end. Let the battle be your friend. Not forgotten, but forgiven. You were born, so you better start living. Get out of bed. Wipe away the layer of shame. Wipe the tears from your face. We're all in a palm of grace. And allow yourself this embrace. Beautiful. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's it. Somehow, some way today, I feel God in many different ways to different ones of us is saying, will you receive my embrace? Well, let's stand together. <coughs> just want to bless you. To, it's almost time to get our kids, so I want to release you to do that. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and this week. May the Holy Spirit empower you to receive the love of God, the grace of God. Because this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So may the Lord empower you to live in a posture of, of continually receiving God's radical embrace. And in doing so, that you may be the extension of his arms 
of that radical embrace to those that are hurting, those that are wounded, those that are sick, those that are disappointed, discouraged, despondent. For the glory of his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank <clears throat> you.